0: This is Global Crisis Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and current ABC News National Defense and Security Analyst, Mick Mulroy joins the Media Maven's podcast for a monthly examination of global events and their impact in our lives. And here is the host of Global Crisis Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller.
1: This is Sarah Miller with Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here with Mick Mulray. Hey, Mick, what's going on?
0: It's a great day. Absolutely. <laughs> great to be here.
1: We are on for Global Crisis Watch with you today because, I mean, you've been on a few times. You are a former CIA military operations intelligence. Currently, ABC News has you as their one of their top security analysts for global crises around the world. correct. That's correct. That is a long title, but it's very impressive. But we're super glad you're on this month with us. We've had some really good podcasts with you. And I feel like every time we talk to you, because it's, you know, every month on Global Crisis Watch, it's just sad that there's always some new crisis going on in the world. Like, I'm going to be super happy when we get on our next podcast in the future. We have nothing to talk about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's it's there's a lot of conflicts in the world, and, and you know there's a lot of sadness in it. So, but it's important that people know about it because it might not affect their everyday lives, but they should care. So, I hope by talking about these things and giving the people information that they might not necessarily get.
1: Yeah, and um, I, it, being in PR, I we see a lot of sensationalism, a lot of press. You know, they're going to spin what's going to sell but we've had such a tremendous time talking to you because we're really getting into what's going on in the world. And it affects everybody. Everybody knows somebody near and far who's affected by what's going on. So I'm just super happy. We have you and like, no fans, but the day that to say, sorry, there's no more major crises. We have nothing to talk about is a day that i will be happy to call you and say, you know, go fishing. We have nothing
0: exciting. We'll be good.
1: There you go. Let's talk about what's going on. We haven't talked to you in a few weeks. I know I saw the news on Afghanistan yesterday, the 8th. They told everybody there to get to the consulate and get out. Is that correct? And is that was that a because the consulates are shutting down? I know it was uh, the UK embassy was taking a big stand yesterday in some news that I saw. But was this really between the UK and US? That's where most of the foreigners were coming from both countries and they're saying, get out by the eighth, or was it just a the eighth is kind of your last safety net to get out safely I didn't they didn't I didn't see enough on where August eighth was coming from why yesterday was so critical.
0: So I think you know, even the folks that predicted that Taliban would likely start taking over hard swaths of the country they didn't expect it to happen this fast, right. So just in the last seventy two hours, which is the weekend and you know it's Monday. Uh, they've taken over five provisional capitals, including Kandus, which is a very significant piece of terrain, and they're all over the country. Now, that said, there's 34 provisional capitals, so it's not curtains yet. But actually, the Taliban's about 80% right now of the country, the districts, which is actually the geographic terrain that they've taken. So and it's happening quicker than, than we expected. The U.S. doesn't have a full withdrawal until the 31st of August. In which will end air support. So it's just not looking good. Quite frankly, we've seen several Afghan units essentially give up and start moving back toward the Kabul region. And a lot of their equipment and weapons have been gained by the Taliban. So to your point of the question, there is, I think, if you take all of that, the U.S. is very concerned about its citizens. We have a lot of citizens that are over there with NGOs, doing charitable work, humanitarian work, and they have been for 20 years. And so we don't want to get in the situation where these these good folks are taken by the Taliban who might use them for some kind of leverage. And I think the the US just wants and the UK just wants them out of the country so they don't have to worry about their safety and well being once these areas that they might be in get taken over by the Taliban.
1: I mean it's crazy because we talked before about this briefly that you know, everybody's trying to flee the country right now. I mean, people who live there, I mean, these families, I mean, Taliban, I mean, is the concern of where we're going in the future is that they are going to be 100% taken over in this country because was it, Kabul is the main capital, right? That's the main place that the U.S. troops are going to keep some people on the ground, just in beyond the 30 correct. days, correct?
0: That is correct. So, the, I mean, when I first got there, or I should not be, but her not just me, but all of the Americans when they first got there, Kabul was only a couple hundred thousand people, right? millions of people now. I know that we hear a lot in the media about, you know, how things are horrible in Afghanistan. But if you take the collective effort over the last 20 years, we've electrified substantial portion of the country. Girls who who never went to school before under the Taliban were going to school and going to university. And there's big universities in Kabul. And there's a lot of positive things. you know, I mean, positive things don't generally make the news. That had happened. wasn't perfect. But Kabul has got grown immensely. And when what has happened in the past when the Taliban took Kabul, they basically encircle it, and then they will bring out their artillery and shell it to, you know, oblivion. If that happens, then the international community is going to have to decide whether they want to stay in Kabul. And if they leave, that's when, uh, you know, the Taliban will be We'll go totally medieval and and try to take back the capital. And if that happens, we're talking a mass exodus of people from the city trying to leave Afghanistan. You know, the UN special envoy for Yemen said over the weekend that this could be and likely will be the biggest humanitarian catastrophe of our generation. And that's saying something considering Syria and Yemen has happened during our generation. There are some significant issues that people should be aware of. The Taliban is not a changed organization. They are just as despotic as they were pre nine eleven, And they will be housing not only Al-Qaeda, but also ISIS, which you know is a new uh, but obviously very toxic uh, brand of Al-Qaeda in their country. And they exist for one reason, which is to conduct terrorist attacks. If the Taliban is in charge, then there's no reason to conduct terrorist attacks in Afghanistan. They're going to be looking to do that in Europe. They're going to be looking to do that in the United States. So I don't think we should be in any way comforted at all by the fact that the Taliban has pledged that they will not allow them to conduct external attacks. I don't know they will even have the ability to prevent them. But they've never shown any inclination to do that.
1: So all of our troops, UKs, all of international, I mean, everybody's going to be pretty much sequestered into Kabul because that's the main airport and that's the only place in the entire country that we're going to have any protection by U.S. forces. But I kind of feel if it's gone so bad and you know, it's just, it feels like you're just going to be cornered in Kabul for safety, why leave anybody there? I mean, Why not just get out? I mean, why leave our troops there at the airport? Why not just get out of the country at this point in general?
0: So that's a really good question. I think they'll be asking asking it because, I mean, obviously Afghanistan is a landlocked country. And then Kabul was not in the center, but it's essentially locked in the center of Afghanistan. The the, uh, Taliban's taken over all the territory around it. So the only way in and out is the airport. So uh, one thing we expect that the Taliban will show up with is going to be surface to air missiles, which are probably going to be brought in by another country. But they will start challenging our ability to have air. Superiority there, uh, certainly with civilian life. So uh, there will be a question when the Taliban surrounds Kabul whether we should, we, the U.S., should stay there. It'll be an embarrassment to our country. It'll look somewhat like Saigon if we wait too late. The whole depiction that everybody thinks of with the helicopter on the roof in Saigon. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope all of the, all of the analysts, and I don't think there's a lot that disagree with this, up there, I hope are, we are all wrong. I hope the Afghan National Army pushes back and is successful against the Taliban. But if they're not, this is going to be a humanitarian crisis on unseen, even though if you think about how bad Syria was, it's hard to believe that this could be worse. But there's a lot of people talking about a potential UN force could go in there, and about 5,000. I don't think that's... I hope that would happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't see anybody... Willing to step up and do that if the United States is. The United States has to lead. If the United States doesn't lead, nobody else will, including NATO, which is already, you know, they're going to be on the same timeline we are for the end of August.
1: It just seems like more of a suicide mission. And I don't, I mean, do you think the U.S. would lead to kind of step back in? Because I know the whole effort's been to pull out. We've been there for so long. And I just feel like, you know, those media's always chasing down war stories and what's going on internationally. You know, you have the embassies there. I just feel like because the Taliban is—I mean, we talked before. I know that when the troops move out, tanks, armory—I mean, everything went to their armies to protect them. And the Taliban's taken all that over. I just don't know how feasible is it to really leave somebody there because we're now given who we have in Kabul. You're outnumbered, outpowered on every level. So I mean, you—is it worth still? Fighting, or is it easier to save as many lives as we can get them out and just
0: walk away? So, I mean, that's, that's what it looks like we're going to do. I and plenty of other national security people made the argument that keeping 3,500 troops in Afghanistan to be able to preserve what we fought for in the last 20 years was worth it. We haven't lost a person at the time we decided to pull out in over a year and was not on the relative scale of deployments that expensive. I mean, we've kept people in. Korea and Japan and Germany for decades. Nobody even talked about it. Nobody even could ask most Americans. They would have any idea maybe we have in any of those places or how much it costs. So, but unfortunately that, that argument, uh, you know, it's water under the bridge. We've made a decision to depart. I don't see that decision being reversed. I I, 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 I would hope that we could, you know, reverse a decision that turned out to be a bad one. And if we do, you know, we better do it quick. Because once you decide to, to depart, it's very difficult to get back in. I think we're probably at the point where that's practically unlikely. But then we're gonna have to deal with the consequences. Because if we if you know, if we get attacked by a group that is safe harbored in Afghanistan, what are we gonna do? Our country is not, I don't think, gonna be looking to restart this entire thing and go back in there. But that's something they they, they know too. I mean they, they they're sophisticated dissent, they know our politics too. If they attack us, is the U.S. really going to go back and take over the whole country again and spend a trillion dollars and thousands of lives? They know that's not the case. So they're going to be emboldened now And we've decided to depart.
1: Yeah, I have a question I kind of need you to clarify, just because we see so much news out there. We see we hear it. it's never really 100% thought through. In my mind, I know some of the reports suggesting from these Taliban leaders, they're seizing control of the capitals out of retaliation for recent airstrikes. You know, what we've looked at, what we've read is that because of this, they've condemned airstrikes as a violation of their 2020 of a bilateral agreement with the U.S. Can you talk to that and how accurate that statement is?
0: Yeah, so we had, we negotiated with the Taliban, which many would say was worthless because they aren't worth, they don't, you can't trust what they have to say, obviously. Part of the negotiation was that we would leave and they would not attack our forces if we did not attack them. So is this a violation? The idea that we were going to leave, and and they were not supposed to start taking over the entire country. So we have an obligation, at least till the end of August, to defend our partners in the Afghan security forces. And that's what we've been doing. And only emergency close air support. So ECAS is the shorthand term for that. But what that means is, we're not going to go out there and do an offensive campaign to push back the Taliban necessarily and allow the Afghan forces to then retake terrain. We're going to defend them from, from completely losing. Uh, and what that's mean is it hasn't stopped the fall of the provincial capitals. One, because it's it's only as a last ditch effort. And two, once the Taliban gets into an urban area, it's very difficult to take airstrikes without killing civilians. Right. We don't want to do that. Of course we don't want to do that. So once they're in the, the urban area, we don't have controllers on the ground. So we can't do the terminal guidance, which is essentially in you know, in the layman's terms, we have the ability to know we're not gonna hurt civilians, but we're gonna hit the bad guys. So once they get into the towns like Conduce and all the other captains, the provincial capitals they took, the air airs cut off. It's it's over. And it's gonna be completely over on the 34th.
1: Well they and they, they actually and I don't know or how this ended, but they did attack the Afghan Minister of Defense and that was right in the middle of Kabul. So I'm assuming they just went directly for the guy you know, the people in charge. They went straight in the middle. And once if and I'm not sure how if, if the uh, Minister of Defense got out or if they were even there or not, but I'm assuming that was a very that was planned by design. And that's that's right in Kabul, the last safe place, so to speak, if you could call it that. Where any of our troops
0: are right now. Yes, we only have 600 troops there. I think once once everybody pulls out on the end of this month. But the strategy on the Taliban seems to be that they're going to surround every provincial capital that they can, and then when we're no more air support, they're going to start uh, taking those capitals. Then they're likely to consolidate around Kabul and put pressure on Kabul and start going after the leadership targets, like we just mentioned he was not there when the attack happened, but it does show that they can get you know explosive laden vehicles inside the security ring of Kabul and kill a lot of people. and that's and that's obviously not good. I mean anybody being killed is not good. Uh, but that's what they're gonna step up. It's gonna be assassination key Afghan leaders. Hopefully they'll scare the people that to replace him out and you know, a lot. a lot of these these folks are going to leave the country which the Taliban's fine with, right? If they, they end up with most of the kind of modern thinkers leaving the country, then all that's left is the folks that things like them. And that's what happened before when they were in charge. So they will continue assassination attempts on key leaders and they will continue to take terrain and surround Kabul.
1: This is crazy. We're on some of the media press conferences and stuff that I've seen. I mean, it's all over the news right now. The press is getting... a a little feisty and a lot more aggressive than normal because they're asking because I think what the concern is, is it imminent that we're going to have another 9-11 type of attack or a bunch of them similar to the damage and lives being taken and where this is going to affect us? And every time they brought this question up in these press conferences, some of the people from Biden's administration and Biden himself have stumbled through the answers they have pushed back, you know, this isn't our country, it's not our place. And they're kind of dodging some of these questions. So I get why the media is pressing forward and getting more aggressive. I mean, I've literally seen I think Biden snap twice at a reporter, which I mean, obviously, you don't do you're a, you're a world leader, you keep your cool. But I think the pressure is on there because the media wants answers. But media does write takes things up context, sensationalizes stuff, which I know you guys don't want to see happen, especially right now. But just in your personal opinion, I mean, where do you think this is going like in the next year? We could go out a year or so, given how bad things are, they're quickly unraveling. Is this something that we do need to kind of put more time and energy into or something that our administration needs to kind of focus on, which is strengthening our security for terrorism, you know, because remember, what was it? They were planes, trains. I mean, they're getting in any way they can. And I feel like this is kind of imminent. It's going to happen again while the press is getting more aggressive, demanding these answers. But I don't know if you could answer that question right now.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like a lot of military people, a lot of press people have served in Afghanistan in a 20-year conflict. So a lot of, I mean, they're supposed to be objective in them. They are. But, I mean, we're all people, right? So if we've spent a lot of time in Afghanistan covering the press, has spent a lot of time in Afghanistan covering this, they've met a lot of Afghans. They know a lot of Afghans. There is a movement now to for the Afghans that worked in the media, you know, to get out too. So it's not just the interpreters that work with the military, et cetera. So there's, I mean, it's personal to a lot of them, to answer your question. They're going to get heated because they don't, I think they're asking legitimate questions, like, why was this necessary to be so precipitous to depart this way? Why is it so, you know, unacceptable to have this relatively minimal force, or we did have a minimal force and minimal expense? You know, so they're asking legitimate questions, and I think it's just hard to answer the question. I don't think it's uh, secret that a lot of uh, advisors to the president uh, were against it. You know, from, you know, essentially, you know, from my understanding... Most of all, the leadership at the Pentagon, military and civilian, thought this was not the right move. That that you know, this wasn't the thing to do. So it's going to be difficult to defend something that you didn't support. But that's that said, Under our system, once the president makes his his or her mind up, that's that's the answer. So we don't we don't get to overrule the president, um, especially when it comes to this. But this is this is going to be something that's going to be hard to justify. I think in the years to come. And a lot of people are going to be wringing their hands going, we should never have done that, I think.
1: Yeah, but yeah. I hope
0: I'm wrong. I really, really, I have yeah. a lot of Afghan friends. And I've talked to a lot of them recently, including today. And uh, I really hope I'm wrong. But right now, the only people fighting are the special operations forces, the commandos, and a, and a few groups inside the intelligence services. And they're fighting to the, I mean, we are they are losing. It is way worse than I think we even are seeing on on Western media. It's it, it is a very difficult situation for people and civilians being killed as they go through and take these tricks and take these provisional capital.
1: It's just a lot of life's lost and it's just unnecessary. And, you know, I don't want to get too political because I know we want to switch topics to get an update in our round with you. I mean, it's not saying that people shouldn't travel, go live their life, go travel to Europe, wherever they want to go. Be afraid to get on a plane, a train and go out it's not a fair factor that, oh my God, another nine eleven, But I do feel that people do need to be a little bit more aware of their surroundings, be a little more alert because I think we've kind of dropped our guard a lot over the years. And with COVID, now people are able to fly again and move around. I, I just, I do, I agree with you and I agree with the press that it's not going to be shocking if we start seeing more attacks in the upcoming year or two. It's just, I think it's just going to be so political and hard to handle because you know there's going to be somebody's going to point a finger. Biden wanted them pulled out. People want them to stay. Who's going to take the blame? Nobody's going to really blame for a terrorist group who just they're just a different breed of humans over there. You know, we can't really justify that. But I do think what's going on right now is going to lay down some pretty strong footprints for what's going to happen the next year or two, not just politically, but from a terrorist standpoint on U.S. oil. So I see where that is coming from with the press. But it's, they don't want to talk about it because they don't have answers. They don't want to create fear. It's hard to enough off COVID to create any more, you know, fear in people who want to get back out there. But it's hard to read this and talk about this without any end game to look forward to or to understand where it's going to happen. There's no there there on this one. I think that's where the difficult part is right now for everybody. Yeah. And you know, I don't
0: do politics so I don't yeah. want anything to do with, me. So and and I want to be able to advise both sides anyway, because, you know, if I have an expertise, that's it. But, you know, at the end of the day, these folks are, are bent on causing death and destruction to their enemies. And in the United States, they don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or independent. We're the enemy. So it shouldn't dominate our life. To your point, you should, you know, still travel. Just be smart all that. They are, at the end of the day, I mean, there far more people get killed in car accidents than terrorist attacks. So we have to put it in the right perspective. But we also, we being, you know, my former groups since the Department of Defense and the CIA have an obligation to defend Americans, period. So we can do everything that we, you know, we do in the world, whether it's diplomatic engagements, economic, you know, agreements with other countries, tourism, travel is a big deal for all the countries, and humanitarian efforts. I mean, we're we should take pride in the efforts we do there. But it is it is going to have to be something that, you know, we we have to accept that terrorism is never going to be ended by a treaty signed on a, you know, destroyer, like at the end of World War II. It's just not the case. It's more like the war on crime. You know, it's just it just keeps going, unfortunately. Crime's not stopping. So terrorism's not going to stop. It's a philosophy. It's a toxic one. But we have to be willing to do what we need to to defend ourselves. Now, the ultimate answer, if there is an answer to the question, is to change the economic situations in a lot of these places. But that requires a lot of money and a lot of effort, and, and it's not going to be easy. But that's what ultimately is a driver into young men coming involved in these these groups.
1: Yeah, it was good to talk about this because I know it's all over the news. And it's great to get some clarity of what's really going on over there. But I want to pivot over to Iran with you for a minute before we end the podcast. We talked about them producing their own uranium for nuclear weapons down the road. I believe there was a new president or commander over there. Can you give us a little bit of update of what's going on over in Iran in this past week or two?
0: Yes, absolutely. So. With the current administration, U.S. administration coming in, there was a strong push to revive the talks to get both parties that point, U.S. and Iran, back into the JCPOA, which is a nuclear agreement from 2015. Obviously, that was done under the Obama administration. Then Vice President Biden was very heavily involved. And also, there so was the current Secretary of State Blinken and the current CIA director they were very involved in the original agreement in 2015. So we, the, under the Trump administration, pulled out in 2018. What we've seen since then is Iran is enriching uranium at a higher level than they ever have, and the storage is is well beyond what was allowed in the JCPOA. So we all wanted to see, I shouldn't say we all, there's plenty of people that didn't want to see this, but Iran get back into compliance and then deal with all the other activities they do that's not helpful in the region out bad in a separate agreement, then Ibrahim Raisi, who was a judicial chief prosecutor in Iran, won the presidency. Essentially, there is a group that screens candidates and they screened everybody that would have had a chance to beat him. so it wasn't really an election. He is now the president he was he was sworn in, and because of his hardline stance, people were very concerned that the negotiation, which had stalled, would just be completely complete, but he recently told the Iranian people that he was going to get sanctions lifted. So a lot of people looked at that as a positive sign for him going back to the table, because the sanctions that we have imposed on them is pretty critical to their economy. So, I mean, for the folks that would like to see this go forward, which is all of our European partners, President Macron today had a conversation with Raisi, I guess, you know, the normal welcome president kind of conversation, but pushed to start these negotiations, and apparently Raisi was amenable to that and asked that um, you know basically branch the system in getting a, a fair agreement. So for those that would like to see this agreement and Iran get back into compliance, I think this is a good thing. If it's not, and Iran does continue down the path we seem to be on, we could end up with an Iran that has a nuclear weapon, and that could completely destabilize the region. It could start an arms race, we could see Israel taking unilateral action as they would deem it to be an existential threat to them. It could be significantly bad in a situation that's already bad, right?
1: Do you think they'll come back into compliance and you think it's going to be a long time before with, you know, negotiations and talks to get them back in compliance? I mean, how unreasonable is it from their side and demands to get back in compliance?
0: So, I mean, from there... Side they're they're basically and I did a debate with an Iranian on uh, a foreign television program. Get a good point. We're the ones who got out, right? So you know we elected to get out of the 2018 or 2015 agreement 2018. And uh, you know the criticism of the agreement was it didn't cover everything, which is fair from their perspective. We agreed, they agreed, and then we just decided to get out. So then from their perspective, why would they try to go back in? Because I mean we don't keep our our agreements. Is their argument? Fair they do a lot of bad things. So, there's a lot of things to talk about what they do, which is including causing chaos in Yemen and extending that conflict, kind like basically attacking all their adversaries, whether it be Saudi Arabia or Israel through proxy. But ultimately, it would be in the Iranian people's interest to have sanctions removed. Their economy has been greatly crippled by it. And it would be in the interest, I think, of the region to have the stability that would come from. A Iran was not seeking to gain a nuclear weapon. So I do think there is incentive on both sides, which is what's needed to end up with a negotiated agreement. We did it in 2015, so it's not impossible, right? So let's let's keep that in mind. But there will be a lot of back and forth and saving of face, the national pride, this and that. So it won't happen overnight. And we do need to address all the things they are doing with these proxy forces as we call them, like Hezbollah, Houthis, Hashtashabi and in, in Iraq, all these groups they use to attack people because they they want to be they want to be able to say, it wasn't us, it was these groups. And they you know they just attacked and killed two civilians on a merchant vessel, which the US, the UK and Israel has said publicly that we will retaliate for. So stand by for, for that retaliation.
1: Do you think they'll take some stand on that retaliation right now? What do you think? Because I feel like that will just provoke the Iranians to not come back in compliance. They were just kind of like poking the bear on that one. It could
0: depends on on what the what the response is, right? So the Iranians drone into the bridge of a commercial vessel and killed two of the crewmen, civilians. I think one was the UK and another one was a European Union citizen. So. I personally don't think you can let those actions go. You have to you have to defend your people and you have to make sure the Iranians know that's unacceptable. So I do think there will be a response. It'll probably be calculated not to escalate, but you know, part of that is Iran's decision. Whether that action will actually escalate to a point where Iran doesn't want to get back into the discussions, I, I don't know.
1: I have a quick question for you, wrap here, Mick. They are I would say mining, if that's the right term for uranium. If they don't go back in compliance, how far are they into the uranium and building nuclear weapons? Is it something that we're concerned that they may do, or are they already past that point to where they're already starting to build because they have access?
0: So, I and mean, I'm obviously not a nuclear physicist, but when it comes to enriching uranium, you get to a point where you can use it for energy production, and then you have to go beyond that to use it for weaponize weaponize. So it's called the breakout period, and that's when they they go from saying, well, we're just going to use this to help power, you know, civilian power or Iran, to, okay, now we have a nuclear weapon. It's getting shorter and shorter by the amount of storage they've had and, and the, the longer that they have done this enrichment and to the percentages that they need to get to a point where they can have this short breakout period. You know, and, and quite frankly, if you look at it from practical purposes, you look at North Korea. North Korea ended up with nuclear weapons. And, you know, we never really had any serious thought of, you know, invading North Korea or, you know, we're, we're meeting and having handshakes and writing nice letters to each other. If you look at Libya, you know, Qaddafi, we talked him out of essentially getting a nuclear weapon was good, but Qaddafi ended up dead in a ditch, literally. So when you look at these type of countries, they see that too. They know if they get to a nuclear weapon, they're essentially going to be able to take their regime... And it's safe in perpetuity because people don't want to mess with a nuclear country, you know, a country with nuclear weapons. So it is a it is a tension. It is a dilemma for sure. But we just don't want to see it happen because it would probably spark a race where other countries in the region, Saudi Arabia and others, would, would feel like they now have to have a nuclear weapon. And whenever you have, you know, a abundance of countries with nuclear weapons, you could have a significant problem.
1: Yeah, it was so good having you back on again, Mick. I mean, I hate that I say that. It is good to have you on and talk to you, but I I appreciate the update. There's been so much going on. So thank you for coming back on with us.
0: You're welcome, Sarah. Great to talk to
1: you. Yeah, it's always good to have you on Global Crisis Watch. So we'll see you in a month for more updates. But until then, this is Sarah Miller with the Media Mavens Podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us for Global Crisis Watch. This Media Maven's podcast special presentation is brought to you by the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more podcasts and to learn more about our hosts and guests, please go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit C-SuiteRadio.com.